Let's turn now to Second Timothy, and we'll read the third chapter and the first four verses of uh, chapter 4. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Jannes and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs was also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, <clears throat> be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. In connection with our scripture reading, turn again to the Belgic Confession, Article 7. Article 7, the sufficiency of scripture. We believe that this holy scripture contains the will of God completely, and that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. For since the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in it at great length, no one, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, as Paul says, ought to teach other than what the Holy Scriptures have already taught us. For since it is forbidden to add to or subtract from the Word of God, this plainly demonstrates that the teaching is perfect and complete in all respects. Therefore, we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings. Nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor the passage of time, or persons, nor councils, decrees, 
or official decisions above the truth of God. For truth is above everything else. For all human beings are liars by nature and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts everything that does not agree with this infallible rule, as we are taught to do by the apostles when they say, Test the spirits to see if they are of God. And also, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've come to this final article in our confession of the the doctrine of Scripture. And uh, you might say that this article especially is uh, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. It has to do with the practical application of the doctrine of Scripture in terms of how its authority is actually um, used in our in our lives. Uh, the, the scripture are described in this article as an infallible rule. It's not only without error, but it is uh, impossible that this inspired uh, rule of God should uh, be characterized by any kind of faultiness or weakness or deficiency. And it's an infallible rule for uh, faith and life. Uh, that's uh, a common division indicating both uh, what we are to live or what we are to believe on the one hand and uh, how we are then to live out that belief. And again, that makes clear that faith uh, is not comparable to a pair of reading glasses that we put on occasionally and uh, for certain use and then we we take them off at other times. Um, our religious life is not like a, a, a separate compartment of life that we enter now and then for a while, and then we we exit when uh, when church is over, or when Sunday is over, or when our devotional time is over, as if it's just some uh, segment of our life. No, the Bible is absolutely relevant for all of life. It's not simply relevant when we're engaged in Bible study, but it's uh, relevant when we're engaged in uh, a study of science or history or sociology or psychology. And I, I realize that when I say such things, someone might say, well, the Bible is not a textbook of science and it's not a textbook of history or biology. And of course, that's correct. It's true. And, uh, there are a lot of details with respect to all of these things that we, that we learn from other sources. The Bible doesn't give us the anatomy of a frog, for example. Uh, but the fact is that, uh, whatever the Bible does say about such things, as it is understood and interpreted truly, is true. And wherever textbooks on such subjects do contradict a proper understanding of Scripture, those textbooks are wrong. And the Bible is right. Because the Bible is ultimately the supreme authority for faith in life. And whatever it addresses, it doesn't address everything, of course, but wherever it speaks, it speaks with authority, with practical authority, to be believed, to be, to be applied. 
That's what we confess here in Article 7. We confess the sufficiency of Scripture, that it is complete, that it is adequate to be our rule for the whole uh, walk of faith, the Christian life. And we recognize that it's it's possible, in fact, it often happens that uh, the the sufficiency of Scripture can be denied in practice because of a failure to apply its authority when it comes down to daily life. It's possible to say very orthodox and very high things about the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture and yet fail to actually practice what the Bible says in areas of our daily life. And so that's an ongoing challenge indeed to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and to conform our conduct and our way of thinking and speaking uh, to this supreme rule for our faith and life. We don't want to separate uh, verse uh, 15 of 2 Timothy, Timothy 4, where it speaks of, or verse 16 rather, which describes inspiration of Scripture. We don't want to separate that from its profitableness for all these various purposes in order to make uh, the man of God, and uh, there that's a reference particularly to, to Timothy as a, as a minister of the word, but it applies as well to every man or woman of God or boy or girl of God so that we might be thoroughly equipped by Scripture for every good word and every good work. We confess that the Bible is sufficient, and there are three specific ways in which we want to Look at that sufficiency tonight. Beginning with the fact that the Bible is sufficient to determine our doctrine. We believe that this Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely and that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. And we need to remember the setting of, uh, of the Belgian Confession as well as the other Reformed Confessions. Uh, many things that are, are confessed uh, in these standards of, uh, of, uh, of our, of our church were written in the awareness of a contrary teaching that was held by the Roman Catholic Church. These are Protestant confessions and often they exhibit a kind of self-awareness that they're confessing the truth over against errors, errors that had become characteristic of, uh, the Roman Catholic Church a church that has elevated church tradition to the level of Scripture. And as we've seen, once you do that, you elevate tradition above the Scripture. How else could uh, the church come up with such doctrines as the Immaculate Conception? And this with reference to Mary, that Mary was born uh, and conceived without original sin. Or the Assumption of Mary, that she was taken directly to heaven. Or the Supremacy of the Pope. Or the Doctrine of Purgatory or the extra merits of the saints that can help out ordinary Christians to get a little bit more merit by accessing this treasury of merit through the saints. Those things aren't found in the Bible, but they belong to official uh, dogma, doctrine, confession of the Roman Catholic Church. And sometimes uh, such additions, sometimes such traditions are defended with very pious-sounding language. Something like, well, uh, the church is a dynamic, living body in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. 
And the church is not bound to the straight jacket of words on a paper. Protestants, they have a kind of sterile faith. They worship a book, a paper pope. They focus on dead letters. They deny the movement of the spirit in the church. Now, that can sound very impressive. And sadly, it not only uh, sounds similar to the kinds of defense that has been made historically for the addition of traditions to the church, but it's also the language that's used by, by liberal Protestants in the last few hundred years that don't want to be bound to the letter of Scripture, but want to interpret it in the light of, of modern uh, developments and insights and changes. Such accusations are leveled at conservatives today, that we worship a book. No, we don't worship a book, but we revere this book, even as we revere the name of God, and as we revere God, because it's his word. Such language that I've used, uh, that uh, has sometimes been spoken in defense of of uh, the movement of the church into new areas of of doctrine and practice. Uh, such language has been used to defend decisions of, of councils and synods that deny the teaching of scripture. Some of us, uh, might, might remember a church that will go unnamed at present, uh, but a church which at its most, uh, broadest assembly made official changes opening up the offices of the church to women. And part of the justification for these changes is the fact that this, this synod was bathed in prayer. That's the language that was used. Oh, sometimes they would interrupt the proceedings and they would pray together. Now certainly after such pious exercises, the church couldn't be wrong because the Holy Spirit is guiding them. Their decision was bathed in prayer. Sounds pretty moving and impressive. Now, we do not deny that the Holy Spirit leads and guides uh, Christians and churches in their deliberations. But we believe that the Holy Spirit is never inconsistent. The Holy Spirit never contradicts himself. The Holy Spirit has inspired the Holy Scriptures. The Scriptures are God-breathed. And then the Holy Spirit doesn't inspire people to go contrary to what he has revealed. That would remove the foundation of our faith. Remember what Isaiah 8 verse 20 says, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. We do not deny, brothers and sisters, uh, the possibility and, in fact, the, the reality of a deepening knowledge of the Scripture. You compare modern... Um, books on theology written by orthodox believers in the authority of scripture with some of the uh, writings of the early church fathers. And you can see what progress has been made in terms of an understanding of the Bible. And we do not deny that the Holy Spirit guides the church, but we recognize that that growing knowledge must be mined, it must be derived from the word of God. Because the word of God is the truth, which is above all. There are many pressures that uh, that uh, we face that would deny the sufficiency of Scripture, even in fundamental doctrines of of salvation, even in ways that might be rather rather subtle, in the way it perhaps 
does not openly contradict, but maybe just bypasses or ignores or sidelines essential teachings about fundamental issues, about things like the biblical doctrine of sin and human depravity, about the centrality of the cross, about the nature of the atonement, what Christ actually accomplished upon the cross for our salvation. And the biblical language and the biblical teaching about such things may be, may be toned down for fear of sounding insensitive to the fragile psychologies of people who are hurting and who might be triggered by such language of human guilt and sin. And I think it is a trend uh, today where salvation is viewed often primarily not so much in terms of God dealing with our sin problem but helping hurting people, addressing the sadness and the brokenness of people's lives as as if they're victims of a cruel world. And if that's the case, the message that people need is one of unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, without any judgment. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't mean to suggest for a moment that we ought to be uncaring and uncompassionate to hurting people. And we must know that, indeed, the the message of the gospel brings liberty to the captives. It brings deliverance to those who are bound in sin. And it addresses the reality of human misery and problems of every kind. It is the balm that heals, but it does so by addressing what is really at the root of the matter, and that is our sinful alienation from God. The fact that we go each one to our own way and we follow our own desires. And when we're sinned against, we tend to sin in response. And it's the Word of God that addresses the reality of what is really at the root of the problem. We live in a world in which we have to be realize, honestly, that the Bible's uh, strict views, that's what they would be uh, called, that's how they would be judged that it's strict views with regard to such things, of course, we're all familiar with, human sexuality, fixed definitions of male and female, also specific teaching with respect to respective roles. Well, these things must be modified. They must be toned down if the Bible is going to gain acceptance in, in the modern world. And even such language that the church might use in terms of, of sin and, and judgment and, and repentance. Well, these are, these are triggering words now. In fact, these might even be judged as words that are abusive themselves. Words that are racist. Somebody's making a power move, people would think. These are words of oppression. As if some people have the truth. Well, that sounds like a ploy in order to control others and to put them down. You have to realize that that's the way people think in this world in which we live when it comes to truth claims. You say the truth is above all? Oh, you're reflecting your privilege. You're reflecting a culture that in the name of religion has perpetrated every kind of evil. What happens often in the minds of uh, many professing Christians is that the authority of the Bible is denied or undermined. And the the Bible is viewed as a spiritual book uh, that we engage with, right? It's like uh, a reflection on spiritual things that we have on record. And we enter the conversation. It's like the Bible is a religious conversation. 
And we engage with that conversation in a way of give and take. Oh, yes, this is very helpful. This is very insightful. But, of course, it has to be interpreted in our modern world and in terms of modern sensitivities and modern discoveries. And you see what, in effect, happens is that the actual authority of Scripture is lost. No, the Bible is to determine our doctrine, what we are to believe. Secondly, the Bible is sufficient to regulate our worship. Our confession uses the language of the entire manner of service which God requires of us. You can study commentaries and uh, um, treatments of the original language here, and it's, I think, pretty universally understood that the, the word service here especially has to do with uh, the cultists or the, the worship of the church. And again, that was in the foreground of what the Protestant Reformation was all about. It was all about how can we sinners approach a holy God? On what basis do we have access to Him? How can our worship be acceptable to Him? Those were the burning questions of the Protestant Reformation. Those are the big questions of Scripture, aren't they? That's no less of an issue today. Remember the Ten Commandments? Remember that the first four of those commandments have to do with our relationship to God, who we are to worship and how we are to worship them, Him, even when, in a special way, we are to worship Him. could even be argued that the third commandment has to do with where we worship God because it's concerned with the honoring of God's name. And God's name is especially honored where He places His name on His people who gather in His name. Yeah, the first table of the law is about the worship of God. And Protestant churches today need a new reformation because the warning of, uh, of Deuteronomy 12 that's quoted in our confession with respect to adding or subtracting uh, from that word in its context there in Deuteronomy really has to do with worship or to worship God only as he has commanded us in his word. And we never get past that challenge. It is so fundamental. The church never gets past the challenge to keep to the rule. Keep to the rule. And that involves two things in very broad strokes. Number one, it means never lose sight of the spiritual nature of biblical worship, particularly New Testament worship. And we need to resist the inclination that is so natural to us to gravitate towards the sensory, to gravitate towards the the visual, the outward beauty, solemnity, ceremony. That's the tendency of the human heart when it comes to worship, to come up with man-made ceremonies in order to make worship more meaningful. And so people tend to import meaning to the things that they want to do because they might feel moved by them. And the danger is that we get away from the rule that God has given to us as to how he wants us to worship him. Biblical simplicity is necessary for the preservation and for the true blessing of spiritual worship. Again, I know that's a very broad principle. John chapter 4, the Father is seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. And that also means that the word of God is central to worship. The word of God read, the word of God preached, the Word of God prayed. The Word of God sung. Biblical worship is saturated with the Word of God. And secondly, we need to 
seek to meet the challenge, to know why we worship as we do. Now, that's a special responsibility of office bearers, uh, but it's not limited to them. And we ought to care about such things. It's good for us to read good reform books on worship so that we are equipped to even explain why we do things that we do or don't do the things that everyone else seems to be doing. Why don't we feature choirs in our worship service or or special music, as it's called, where people perform who may be specially gifted in music? Why don't we highlight musical instruments as an element of worship as they are regarded by so many today as just essential, necessary? That's what it's all about. That's what draws the people, the music. Why don't we use drama? Why don't we use multimedia presentations? Aren't these things effective to teach? Aren't they moving? Why do we sing hymns as well as psalms? Well, these are some questions. And we should meet the challenge to know why we worship as we do. And we don't want to just simply say, well, that's the way we've always done it. We don't want to say, well, that's just the tradition of our church. We don't want to say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just comfortable with this style. And I, I can remember hearing such language years ago when the United Reformed Churches or when the Orthodox Reformed Church just formed, uh, sometimes in visiting, uh, those that were, uh, considering joining the Orthodox Reformed Church, they, they talked about their discomfort with the things that were happening in the church that they were considering leaving. And I understand what they were saying and they were, they meant more than what they said, but it, it doesn't sound really that good. Then it sounds like it's just a matter of taste. No, I like traditional worship. You like contemporary worship? Potatoes, potatoes. <laughs> no, it's not a matter of what we're comfortable with or what we prefer. Nor do we say, well, Calvin settled that question long ago, or the Puritans settled that question, or the Scottish Covenanters, they settled that question years and years ago. We must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings. Nor may we put custom. That's the way we've always done it. Nor the majority. Everybody else is doing it. Nor age. Oh, it's been happening for so long. Nor the passing of time or persons. Nor councils, decrees, or official decisions above the truth of God. For truth is above everything else. Now, not every question that I, that I just, uh, raised is of the same weight. And not every difference over such matters is a matter of separation from others. But let's never give up the endeavor to test, to test all things, to hold fast, uh, to what is good and to adhere to the scriptures with great care because it really matters. The word of God must determine and regulate our worship. And then thirdly, it's the word of God that uh, is sufficient to be our rule uh, for daily life. I mentioned earlier that the danger is a practical denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. And we're all guilty of that. None of us lives consistently up uh, to this high standard of letting God's word rule and regulate Every area of our life. That's, that's the ongoing process of sanctification that's never complete in this life. But it should always be our aim. I suppose we could modify the list here 
Uh, the Belgic Confession talks about the passage of time or persons, decrees or official decisions or councils. That's reference to official uh, governing bodies of the church. I think we could we could add to this list counselors, counselors. And I feel like I'm sticking my neck out a little bit with uh, the following comments, but uh, I think it's important to consider, and uh, that is the danger that. Uh, a secular psychology or psychiatry poses uh, one of the most dangerous alternatives in our day to the sufficiency of Scripture. And it can it can happen very subtly. It can happen uh, when people think or talk this way. Well, well, the Bible, yes, the Bible is inspired. It's the inspired Word of God. The Bible is sufficient. But when it comes to life's problems... When it comes to the kinds of disorders and the phobias that we suffer, when it comes down to uh, depression or addictions or marriage difficulties or family conflicts, well, then people need to see a professional. And behind that language, there can be a lot of assumptions. And some of them can be mistaken. Now, again, don't misunderstand me as if I'm uh, somehow against the idea of, of counselors or those who might give counsel as a vocation and who may be very gifted at it. In fact, I would say we really could use those who are trained and who are gifted in professional counseling, biblical counseling. We're not opposed to these things. We value biblical counseling. I think you can check out the the, the booklets on the rack in the back of the church that address a, a variety of the kinds of, of issues and problems that I that I just addressed and and do so from a biblical spec perspective. And uh, there is great value in people who have special gifts and the time and a passion uh, for helping people with godly counsel. But Christians must not trust in counselors who are either not Christian or have accepted so much unbelieving psychology has to be really worse than useless in giving help that is in agreement with the infallible word. The world, and by that I mean unbelieving people of this world who reflect its values and its perspective, the world cannot understand. They cannot understand the problem. They cannot understand human nature as revealed in Scripture adequately. Without a doctrine of sin revealed in Scripture, their their uh, diagnosis will be inadequate. Because in all our problems, our sin has a component. Now, that doesn't mean that all of our problems are caused by sin. I suppose in the bigger picture they are, but sometimes those are sins committed against us. But without realizing uh, that our fundamental problem continues to be our natural alienation from God and our tendency to follow our own desires contrary to the good counsel of God's word. Apart from that recognition, there's a sense in which even if we find help, it won't get to the root of the problem. You know that there are many secular counselors that can be quite effective in helping people to get over addiction, to get help uh, over a whole variety of problems so that they do much better. They maybe get past it, and yet it may not get to the real root of the matter, which has to do with our relationship with God, the knowledge of His grace and salvation. 
the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We need to beware of ungodly counsel, right? Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And again, that doesn't mean that nothing that anyone says who is not a Christian is of no value and use. No, much of that can be of great use. But not if or when or where it's in conflict with the word of God. And that requires care and discernment and wisdom from above. We also need to beware of following fads. You know that whenever we hear promises of success in business or relationships or mental health or whatever, by following easy steps that have been invented by a best-selling author or invented uh, by some social media personality or by some life coach or some guru of one kind or another, we can be sure, we can be sure that the Bible will not be the rule of life. And of course, in the application of, uh, of the sufficiency of scripture to daily life is an ongoing daily challenge. I suppose I could put this challenge this way in the words of scripture itself, quoted by our Lord Jesus when he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, to live, to live as those who are being restored those who have been bruised and broken by the fall and are being restored to God and being restored to the image of God in fellowship with his people, we need to live by words, all those words, not by feelings, not even by, by prayer as an alternative to obedience, to following the word of God. And of course, uh, our lives ought to be bathed with prayer. We need to pray continually. But the challenge is to live by God's word. And that means that with all the helps that we might get from a variety of places, read the Bible. Read it a lot. Read it in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Read it with the conviction that as you take God's word for what it says, and you pray that by the Holy Spirit you'll understand it and apply it, you will, you will be better and better at at the smell test, so to speak. In other words, you'll, you'll gain your discernment. Discernment in terms of what you read in books or magazines or what you hear on uh, social media or news broadcasts or wherever. And you'll grow in your discernment and you'll say, that's, that's not right. No, that's not right. That's imbalanced. That could be harmful. You see, if you live by the word of God, there's going to be a negative streak to your faith. I don't mean that you're going to be a negative person. I don't mean that you're going to always be critical and judgmental uh, of everything and, uh, and do that from a superior attitude, but it means that you're going to reject a lot, right? Because we reject everything that does not conform to this infallible rule. And that means that very, very often in our own minds, in our, with our words, we're saying, no, 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 that's not right. That's not true. That's not helpful. Because that goes contrary to what the Word of God teaches. And yes, we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would give us discernment and wisdom. And we need to main, we need to stay under faithful gospel preaching. That's the primary means of grace. The primary way in which God establishes us, grounds us, grows us, builds us in our knowledge of the faith.
I recalled in looking at this passage that the first uh, four verses of of Second uh, Timothy chapter four uh, were the text for my ordination sermon over thirty years ago. Uh, Reverend Tuniga, known, remembered by some of you, he preached a sermon at my ordination, and this was his text. A very good text, uh, for an ordination sermon. Because that's, that's what the ministry of the word is about. It's the application of the inspiration and authority of scripture, right? I charge you, therefore, in view, in view of the, the inspiration of scripture and its sufficiency, it's profitableness to equip us for every good work. Therefore, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will heap up teachers for themselves. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Prove, prove increasingly the sufficiency of Christ. Remember what, uh, Paul says in verse 15 to Timothy, he says that from the childhood, from childhood, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. Right? Christ is the key to scripture. The sufficiency of scripture cannot be separated from the sufficiency of Christ as a complete savior. The sufficiency of Christ as our as our chief prophet, who has fully revealed the word of God concerning our salvation. The fact that we are complete in him and his word that dwells in us, equips, enables us to abide in him and to bear much fruit, not only for our own protection, but for our ability to help others, our ability to give good counsel. And that doesn't mean giving lectures. Sometimes it means showing kindness and compassion and spending time with people and speaking words of encouragement from the Bible. And every one of us should pray and seek to get better at that, to apply the sufficiency of Scripture to life's problems as we struggle uh, with such problems, as we share the difficulties, and also the sufficiency of Christ to help us through his word. Amen.